Chapter 9. Sewell Retail I have heard it said that to have a gas-guzzling car like an Aston Martin, you need to own a petrol filling station or two. That could equally apply to an Audi Quattro, an Audi R8, Jaguar Sport, Mercedes Sport, Porsche Boxer, et al. All cars I have owned over the years. Indeed, a stranger might think of me as a petrol head. Nothing could be further from the truth. When questioned about the mysteries of specification or any technical detail, it quickly becomes evident that my knowledge hardly extends to which end of the vehicle contains the engine. In fact, writing this I have become to realise that my relationship with the cars in my life has been largely influenced and nurtured by somebody else. First was my dad, who had a lifelong love affair with the automobile, admiring new models, swapping and choosing, Sunday driving in his Ford Zephyr Zodiac whilst nonchalantly smoking, but above all by obsessively cleaning and polishing his cars, whether they needed it or not. His beloved pristine main car was always safely wrapped in the cotton wool of his obsessively clean and manicured garage, while his work van was for everyday use. Every Sunday he would carefully reverse his spoilt metal baby out of its brick cradle to be lovingly valeted, taken for a twirl, as he would put it, and returned to the dark as if it were a timeless vintage piece. A piece that he would admire and jealously guard to the point where mum was not even allowed to drive it, even in an emergency. His car was probably the only physical expression of his success and hard work, for he wasn't bothered about clothes, holidays or other luxuries. He was much more comfortable giving his wealth away to others, especially his family. He chose to generously provide transport for his offspring, my sister Joan being gifted a VW Golf, and myself the eccentric VW Beetle, to follow my Lambretta. Expect now when I die, he would say. You're getting it all while I'm alive, when you need it most. He would justify his spoiling of us. Both Keith and Dennis at work loved their cars, and when they were choosing their own company model, they were looking out one for me. It was always a model that generously exceeded the status of their own, Keith insisting that I took one of the first Audi Quattros in the area, which was way in advance of what they were driving. I found it all pretty weird in truth, my main pleasure in the car merry-go-round, being confounding the snobs they inhabit this world. I remember one Saturday afternoon travelling back from a game of football in East Hull, in my tracksuit, with sweaty hair and muddy hands. I spontaneously drove into the BMW garage on Annaby Road. I was due a new company car and had a budget of £5,000. I was never a fan of this particular German manufacturer, but thought I would have a quick look at what was on offer. As I entered the showroom, three superior-looking salespeople in sharp suits glanced down their noses at me without acknowledging my arrival or even interrupting their conversation. To them, I guess, I was just a grubby young sightseer So even though I examined each of their cars on display, none of them bothered to come over and engage me. I glanced across, giving them one final chance to try for my custom, then departed. Their loss was not only the chance of a sale that day, but maybe a lifetime's business. I believe that you should think of any customer experience as an opportunity to either create or nurture a loyal regular returning customer. In recent times, David Craven-Jones, our operations director at Sewell on the Go and petrol head extraordinaire, 
has taken on the role of my car agent and advisor. He seriously knows what he's doing, and it's a labour of love for him, I'm sure. This was the case when he accompanied me to Brooklands in Leeds to look at changing my first Aston Martin. We walked into the showroom to find that David had arranged a meeting with the senior salesperson who introduced himself as such. I requested that he appreciate my lack of Aston acumen and interest by giving me a synopsis of Aston Martin for dummies, as I put it. Well, sir, the one you have arrived in would be the entry level, he said in a slow, superior drawl, accentuating the word entry. Well, what would be top of the range, I replied. That would currently be the DB11. Well, we'll have one of them then. He seemed as taken aback as I'd hoped. We will be having what, sir? This time accentuating the what. One of them top of the range jobs you just said, I confirmed. His demeanour modified itself without much more help from me. So after embarrassingly confirming yet again that I was being serious, he invited us into the selection suite where every possible variation of a car specification available for examination could be meticulously sifted and chosen. With me it came down to the colour. Should we start with the Skyfall Silver? He was seriously getting on my tits now. Listen, do you know where I'm from? Delboy may have made it to Hull and back, but James Bond wouldn't have a prayer. We'll go for the graphite grey. CJ sorted the rest. Sutton Service Station in 1978 could not have been further from the glamorous world of 07 and his Aston Martin, or indeed the award-winning forecourts of Sewell on the Go today. A stark, square, metal canopy overarched a small brick-built sales kiosk, with two pump islands each carrying a couple of ancient pumps. On one side of the forecourt, customers' cars competed with the builder's traffic to use the company's yard to the rear. The Chestnut House offices both overshadowed the space and protected the boundary on the other side. Church Street at the front was busy as it was the only road up to Salt House, Sutton Golf Club and the Sutton Annex of Hullroyal Infirmary. It passed the nearby impressive turreted walls of Hull East Member of Parliament and service station customer John Prescott's house. No one had an inkling then that the future Deputy Prime Minister of the country would be a regular Sewell on the go customer or that he'd managed to get one of his famous two jags stuck just about sideways in our rollover car wash. Lord Prescott, as he is now, was as irate as only he can be, blaming everything and everybody rather than the person who was actually culpable, him. It was tempting to release CCTV footage of his trials and tribulations, as he complained vociferously, but I intervened in his argument with David Craven-Jones to spare John's blushes. Nowadays, YouTube and other social media outlets would have had a ball. Our sales offer in the kiosk was the normal frugal fare one expected from a petrol filling station back then. Cigarettes, chewing gum, condoms and engine oil, all served from a small basic counter perched on grubby-looking oil-stained tiles. The tall, rangy Barbara inhabited this hair lair. She'd pull on sexy dark red rubber builder's gloves and emerge into the daylight to dispense whatever grade of fuel the customer requested. Self-service had not hit Sutton Service Station yet 
and some still regret the end of those days where you could pass the time of day whilst your vehicle was being filled and checked. Barbara's sales patter did leave something to be desired, however, Keith once having to do some on-the-spot retraining when she proffered the immortal line now embedded in Sewell folklore. We sell toilet rolls now, love, for when you get caught short for a shite. Anne Cousins and Jean Beals worked as sales assistants for manager Jean Guy, who in turn worked for the owners Doug Sewell, Harold Beckett and Ted Found, the three builders and owners of F. Sewell and Son Hull Limited. There had traditionally been a tank on the forecourt of the builder's yard to fuel the firm's transport, but then BP approached them to turn it into a village service station. The oil company financed a new underground tank and overhead canopy, while the builders created the charmless brick box of a shop. It had evidently worked pretty well as a service station over the years, but by the time we were taking over the building company in the 1980s, owners Doug, Ted and Ivy Beckett were tired of the hassle and responsibility. Keith and Dennis took the opportunity to drive a deal to buy out the previous generation, so we had a petrol station of our own to run alongside the construction business. Keith in particular was keen to be involved, and while his passion and entrepreneurialism were welcome, it was perhaps an early warning that he saw this as preferable to the day job. Perhaps our family-friendly vendors knew that there were plans to bypass Sutton with a new road and thus leave the heritage area village more calm, peaceful and safe for its residents. It could have been that that motivated their desire to sell, but a new bypass certainly wasn't going to do our new business much good. We resolved that this would be the last time we would get caught by inadequate due diligence. We got lucky though in that the discussions with the planners revealed that it was also their desire to get the petrol filling station out of the heritage area and onto the new bypass. The only stumbling block was that it would then have to be surrounded by the new houses that were in the local plan for the site. The council's property people became concerned that any prospective house builder would find it harder to sell houses surrounding an operational petrol filling station and would therefore either review their interest or modify their offer. The answer was for us to be the single developer of the housing and the commercial fuel outlet. There was no agonising over decisions for us in those days. No business case, risk analysis or board approvals. Just a gut feeling as to whether we could deliver and make it pay or not. It was possibly the naivety of youth, added to a growing entrepreneurialism led by Keith, that was making us more than building contractors we were trained to be. Two new brands were created, Sewell Service Station and Sewell Homes. I was very brand aware even then, and convinced the others that we had to put thought and investment into representing ourselves internally and to the outside world, what we were creating and the changes we were making. We needed to upgrade our image from being just mucky, dusty building contractors to something distinctly different. We brought in local marketing agency Souden and Watson, not only to create an iconic brick and silver trowel image, beautifully studio photographed in a pool of white light and indulgently reproduced in what is still the best brochure cover I have ever seen, but to provide a range of logos that would represent our sub-brands. Sewell service stations had a nozzle of a petrol pump in a circle of small inverted triangles. Sewell homes had a little house. Sewell construction had the brick and trowel image 
and others followed in the same style. We were changing, we were going places and we needed to announce this to the world. That's what brand is all about, creating something distinctly different and telling the world about it. Upon taking over Sutton Service Station, we had tendered a new petrol deal and BP lost out to Major, a national brand with offices in Wincombe Lee on the banks of the River Hull. I guess we liked the local thing, even then. Keith conducted the negotiations with the MD of Major, a very posh chap who had a double-barrelled name of which he seemed inordinately proud. Bob Craven-Jones was a tall, handsome man with distinguished grey hair but dark eyebrows that suggested it had formerly been black. His once slim figure was showing signs of lavish corporate entertaining and he was always smartly dressed in the classical style. We were always wary of posh gates, but this one would turn out to be fundamental in the creation and growth of Sewell Retail, but not quite yet. His first contribution was to sort us out a nice oil company soft loan and an architect so we could crack on with the new development on Howdale Road. Neil Jennings and his 360 Design Company had been set up with Bob's help and encouragement to specialise in the development of forecourts, so we thought we were in good hands. We had carved out an impressive site from the housing project master plan and got a good land deal from the council, so it was all systems go for a pioneering project and a different type of filling station. Keith enthusiastically looked after the design development and retail client side, with me managing the new Sutton service station on site, together with an old experienced site manager, Colin Burgess, who had come to us from F Hall. Cue further tittering. Colin was the unhealthiest caricature of a honey monster imaginable. A scruffy, overweight chain smoker with no teeth and gummy smile. His CV was good and his track record of projects enviable. His first job with us was the prestigious new Morrill Street Health Centre in Hull, where he became renowned in the company for watching the test match on his small portable television in his office while his ganger Ray Williamson ran the site. When I brought it up with him, I got a long, bumbling, sputtering soliloquy on the art of delegation. I went easy on Colin, because he had lost his wife to cancer and was trying to rebuild his life. I helped him start courting again, using his passion for country music to woo the chain-smoking Marlene, who was by some years his junior. We stumbled our way through the health centre project, and despite some questionable management practices, got it finished and ready for the big opening ceremony to be undertaken by Princess Anne. My heart sank when I found out that Colin would be joining me in the main presentation party to meet the princess, and I read him the riot act. You wear a suit and tie, properly done up. You have your best wash and flatten that hair with some product. You speak only when spoken to, and respond without one swear word. Please. Pretty please. The presentation party assembled in the reception area of the new health centre. Colin was standing between me and the wife of Fred Drabble, the architect. Fred was charged with showing our royal visitor around his creation. Mrs. Architect wore a very big hat and too much makeup. Colin presented with disastrously styled brill-creamed hair and no teeth. They made a lovely couple. Princess Anne entered the building and commenced gently touching outstretched hands and making the minimum of small talk with the person on the other end.
I got by with a nod and a brief hello, but Colin was next and I froze in anticipation, my future career in the balance. Unbelievably, he was the perfect ambassador, a better nod of the head than I got and a hello which perfectly mimicked mine. She passed us and I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Unfortunately, this was premature. As we saw off the last dignitary, but with the princess still in earshot, Colin responded to the whispered observations ghosting around us. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she small? Just like her great-great-grandmother Victoria. How nice and gracious was she? Colin joined in, but with a voice more confident and pronounced. Aye, I suppose so. Followed by a considered silence while he carefully chose his next words. Better than some of those tits she's got for relatives. I honestly do not think Colin believed he had sworn. Like that gormless Duke of Gloucester, what's he for? At least there were none of the expletives that could well have been used. As I happened to agree with my site manager, I just looked down at my feet and tried not to laugh. At a future topping out ceremony for a health centre we built in Malton, Colin was to get on much better with Fergie, the Duchess of York. That figured. Back at the petrol filling station in Sutton, Colin was obviously not well and hence was increasingly missing from the site, leaving far too much to yours truly. The foundations and brick-built shell were fine, but the mansard roof was unusual and a challenge for me. The steel canopy presented no concern, but the excavation and setting of the huge underground tanks carried a substantial risk of them floating whilst being surrounded by wet concrete that could set around a tank that had moved and risen into the wrong position. I knew what jackhammers on concrete sounded like and didn't want to hear that sound again, at least not when we owned the outcome. Neil Jennings explained knowledgeably that we should fill the tank with water to weigh it down, order the very driest concrete mix and then cross our fingers whilst the pour took place. Thanks Neil, I took the day off just in case. I had come to know that our Colin was prone to the odd little folk's par, but all seemed to go well, even the spider's web of piping that connected the tanks to the pumps, which had to be carefully covered so the block paving on the forecourt could be laid. In trying to avoid damage to the underground pipework, however, we did not consolidate the stone and block paving well enough. This later created settlement problems for us that had to be corrected retrospectively. It's so important to get any work on a construction project right first time. Rework is as embarrassing as it is expensive. The error that I feared Colin had made was over the size of the shop. I thought he had read the scale wrong on the drawing because it was huge. You could fit the old Sutton service station shop into one corner. What was Keith going to put in it? Lots more cigs and condoms for sure, I thought. I still don't know whether it was inadvertent or not, and I never asked. But when it was fully stocked, it became a mini supermarket that was a forerunner of the all singing, all dancing convenience stores we have today. So will retail an accidental pioneer? We'll take it. It was during the job in Malton that Colin was taken seriously ill, his lifestyle catching up with him as it was always going to do. Our company values demand optimum support and understanding of his plight, with me visiting his house on Swarmore Lane, Beverley, every Thursday to drop his wages off and to see how he was doing. 
One Thursday when Sue had come with me, he looked dreadfully ill. His complexion was an awful shade of yellow, his eyes half-closed. Marley and his partner was in sombre mood, but we never mentioned the obvious. We tried to cheer him up by remembering his time as a dog show judge, which got him involved with Sue's hull animal welfare and visits to our house for committee meetings. I recalled his contention that the way to deal with an aggressive dog running at you was to turn your back, then bend down to look at the onrushing animal through your own legs, recounting how I had tried it only to strain my back, tear my hamstring and have my bollocks chewed. Neither Colin or Marlene laughed, and I could sense we were near the end of the road. He died two days later. I have had to deal with death in service a number of times in my career, from young apprentice Tony Booth, killed in a road accident when I first started, right through to young Lewis Tillotson, who suffered adult cot death just recently. You can get qualified for, or experienced in, many things, but being with a grieving family who have lost a loved one, and often still in shock, is not one of them. Choosing your words and the nature of the company's reaction needs a combination of judgement and empathy. I don't know whether I have done it well or badly, I only know how difficult and moving it can be. The new Sutton service station on Howdale Road was completed. The petrol inspector had finished all the necessary statutory checks and we were open for business with an exciting, if accidental, new concept store. Keith had promoted Jean Beals to manager in Sutton Village and now brought her over to run the new outlet. Nobody involved was what we would know as an industry professional. But with that naive passion that sometimes pays dividends, it was staggeringly successful as it launched to record profits. This was similar to our initial success in construction with the housing at Chantlands Avenue and provided a similar confidence boost that we were onto something. Jean and her family were besotted and ran the store as if it was their own family business, with husband Alan and daughter Tracy on site all hours. We acknowledged their superhuman efforts by giving them an equal split of the profits to the three of us. We had learned from the mistakes of the previous generation who remained too hands-on and too greedy to have enough of a life themselves. Unfortunately, this came back to bite us later on when the Beals took out a court action against us claiming that they were promised by Keith a 25% shareholding and held up their regular profit split as evidence. By this time Keith had departed and I had to take over the action with our lawyers, furnishing them with files of evidence to prove that we were just over-generous employers rather than in breach of any equity promises. As is often the case, the action went away at the courtroom door. We learned what organised shoplifting really looked like when the Bacon Boys, as they became known, started to frequent the store. Staff were horrified when they showed me the CCTV revealing the speed with which the thieves transferred the cold packs of bacon from the fridges into any space about their person, down the trousers both front and rear being their favoured hiding place. Cold genitals were hopefully an outcome. I was more horrified when I spied on the film one of our older members of staff apparently in a trance, staring at them during the act and not realising what was going on. It was obvious to me that we were now going up a league in retailing and had to react and respond accordingly. Keith Lee, when in entrepreneurial mode, rather than playing the party animal, was a force to behold. 
After the success of the new Sutton service station, he quickly took over the lease at Yorkway Filling Station on Beverly High Road and was by now not hands-on in the construction business at all. We had brought in as chief estimator a dapper stylish modernising force called Kevin Merrills from F Hall and in due course he became a director. Graham Atkins was maturing in the same direction and he was joined by two other young commercial professionals in quantity surveyors Dave Morn and Andy Kingston. Mr Hutchins had retired and was replaced by the former Holton FD, the almost aristocratic old Hymerian Don Robson. Unfortunately, his attempts to modernise and computerise our finance systems failed and he got us into such a mess we had no alternative other than to let him go. This shattered a proud and decent man and I felt sorry for him. Don was succeeded by the likeable and affable local boy, the rotund, moustached Brian Humphreys. But despite his passion, hard work and having a cultural fit that Don lacked, he too failed. We were by now a pretty big construction company employing over 200 people and this size and growth was too much for somebody who had been a smaller company bookkeeper. Again, I felt sorry for a kid I really liked. I was to bump into him again years later in the toilets on an unforgettable day at Wembley Stadium where Hull City and Arsenal were contesting the FA Cup final. I expected rancour and regret, but none of it from Brian just an honest admission that he was on reflection, not up to it, and grateful for the opportunity. He did not deserve the debilitating spinal problem that was dogging him and affecting his quality of life, and was glad that we had found an old insurance policy that could help him financially. He was succeeded by a supposedly big signing from Corton Beach, brokered between their FD, Ken Pratt, and his next-door neighbour in Swanland, Dennis Sewell. Ken had been part of the success of Dixon Motors when local entrepreneur Paul Dixon impressively grew that business and then sold it at great profit. Ken came into Sewell for a short while to try and sort things out post Brian Humphreys and suggested a guy called John Hansen as just the type of hard-working, hands-on accountant we needed. Hands-on and hard-working he was, but he got things in a worse mess than Brian or Don. Come back Mr Hutchins, all is forgiven. We were not paying some of our bills while paying others twice. Management numbers were either non-existent or obviously plain wrong. And our auditors, Smales Goldie, were voicing concern, with the ever affable Brian Elvidge shaking his head whilst at a loss to properly explain. John himself was starting to look pale, gaunt, ill and scruffy. So once more we had to contemplate action of the most serious form. By this point, we actually felt that it was maybe us as a firm that was the problem for every accountant since Mr Hutchins. They had all failed, and the common thread was us. The answer, however, was before our very eyes, and had been for some time. Dave Leadham worked for Brian Elvridge at Smales Goldie, and resided with us for part of every year doing field work for our annual audit. He'd succeeded the quiet Martin Pottage, who I don't think ever really got us. For instance, he would sit in Mr Hutchins' old office, poring over the ever more complex and intriguing puzzles our accountants would set, when one day I walked in and noticed he had two toilet rolls on his desk, one either side at the front. When I inquired as to their presence and possible purpose, he replied saying that he had got hair fever 
Oh, I responded, feeling a twinkle coming into my eye. I didn't realise you could get that in your arse. He didn't laugh, smile, or change his features in any way, but I sort of got used to my attempts at humour missing the spot. He was probably traumatised by the challenges presented by our kaleidoscopic numbers. His successor Dave Leadham would have smiled, and then I would have received a pitying, slow, laconic look in return, followed by a considered riposte that would be much cleverer and funnier than mine. Dave was so understated, clever and thoughtful in observation and deduction, but frustratingly non-proactive in saying what he thought. In truth, he has not changed much in the long years since, and neither has my desire to know his thoughts on a given subject. Of course, I now take it for what it is, which is his way of doing things, but I will never cease trying to choke those thoughts out of him. I can't remember the circumstances that brought him to my home in Cottingham one evening to sit on the wall of my rustic water well in the front garden, talking about the possibility of him leaving the professional side of accounting and joining us at Sewell. I felt he was already part of the team, so well did I know and respect him. So when he proffered his opinion that the accounts and financial reporting side of our business were not an insoluble conundrum, but were eminently sortable, I believed him although I would have believed few others. And sought them he did, and has done ever since. Dave Leadham becoming a director, then a shareholder, illustrated my intention of always having him on my team. His stewardship of the self-administered pension fund of Dennis and myself gave rise to the next opportunity for Sewell Retail. An old garage facility on Maybury Road in East Hull next to the Marfleet Drain became available, and we used pension fund money to acquire it. Once more, this was decided on gut feel and instinct rather than anything more formally businesslike. Neil Jennings and the 360 Design Company were engaged again and we designed and built our second outlet. This one opened in pomp and ceremony by the then Lord Mayor of Hull, Councillor Mima Bell. This memorable day represented for me the real birth of Sewell Retail because the intent and action to create Maybury Service Station came from me and Dennis rather than from Keith or the former generation where we had merely inherited and improved. Keith had taken the least site on Beverly High Road away with him when we split, so now we had two petrol filling stations and had to run them as more than just a sideline for pin money, but as a business that we intended to grow to meet its full potential. In short, we had to stop playing at it as gifted amateurs and turn professional. Being serious about business involves getting the best people around you, we knew that from the success of Sewell Construction, and fortuitously, somebody who had been in at the beginning of the new Sutton service station had come back onto the scene. The 90s were now well underway. Wham and Duran Duran were dominating the charts. Tim Berners-Lee's World Wide Web was changing the world as we know it, and Lady Diana went to war with the royal family. I ached for some proper music to move me intellectually rather than merely physically, for I suspected I was well into the embarrassing dad-dancing phase that comes to us all. Here on planet Sewell, the large, upright, distinguished figure of Bob Craven Jones had retired from the oil industry and settled down with his family in South Cave, but retirement was evidently not suiting him or his wife Eileen. It had happened way too early for Bob, who had so much more to offer, and Eileen's daily routine was being disturbed with him under her feet. Something had to give. 
The Humberside Training Enterprise Council was giving grants for business improvement training at that time and we had used them extensively on the construction side to get people like Jeff Gordon in to help us improve and modernise. Now that we were looking at retail more seriously, we thought we would avail ourselves of similar input on that side of the business and found out that Bob might be prepared to move from under Eileen's feet. We got hold of him through our industry network and he came to consult and advise on how we could become more professional and grow. Sometimes entrepreneurs need a little help and guidance to grow a business and Humberside Tech were of great help back then. Bob was and is a remarkable man. Not massively intellectual on the one hand, but hugely experienced with useful, understandable basic wisdom on the other. He taught me that simplicity is genius when everybody else is overcomplicating, and that, once again, Mr or Mrs Reliable beats Mr or Mrs Talented every time when you are building an organisation, which we were finding out with Keith Lee. His super posh accents, corporate style and courtly habits seemed out of place at earthy cursing and swearing Sewell, and that was just me. But his industry address book was awesome in an age where knowledge and network were becoming the two big business assets. Our next move was to open negotiations with the boss of the driving school firm of Scarrett, who owned a service station at Southcoats Lane in Hull and was open to offers. David Scarrett had taught Sue to drive, as if a glass of beer was on the bonnet, and Bob closed a deal with him for our third outlet. Business, like most other things, is easy in hindsight, and we probably overpaid a little for this one. But this couldn't be said for our next acquisition, which could be labelled a coup. Bob's network extended to the northeast, where he had contacts with ICI. These contacts revealed two outlets in our area, at Beverley on Homechurch Lane, and at South Cave, just off the A63 westbound, that were out of the area for them, and hence not in their plans. In the summer that the country went into mourning over the untimely death in a Paris underpass of the Princess of Wales, we secured our retail sites four and five. We now had five decent sites, but needed the people infrastructure to go with them. So, as with growing the construction side a decade before, we needed some new signings. Bob was a senior strategist and a natural executive chair, but he needed some young energetic legs at grassroots working on the details. Retail is detail, he used to say, and here we were lacking. Enter two men who would fit the bill way beyond expectations. In what was still a family business, it was fitting and lovely that they were family in the shape of my son Patrick and Bob's son David. Patrick had done the same building degree as me at Leeds University and looked destined to come onto that side of the business, especially when taking on the challenge of all our house building operation, Sewell Homes. After successfully completing the 50 units on Howdale Road surrounding Sutton Service Station, the company looked destined for good business in speculative housing and I could see why this lured Patrick away from his academic specialism in construction contracting. We had sites in Ticton and Bransburton, as well as plans to develop our old builder's yard in the heritage area of Sutton. We had half a dozen semis away on land opposite our office in Church Street, and were pretty confident that we had another arm of our little empire growing to significance. A pivotal part of all this was a guy called Ken Norman. 
Ken was an architectural technician with Ellsworth Sykes Architecture when he decided to break free from the snobby, hierarchical world of ARIBA and set up on his own. He called his firm Building Design Beverly Limited and quickly gained a foothold in the market, mainly with speculative house builders who affectionately nicknamed him Cramamon Ken. He was cheaper, more practical and more personable than his qualified competitors and they resented him as much as he resented them. Ken was tall, good-looking, with a flashing white smile, boyish floppy hair, big designer glasses, and he always wore the trendiest of clothes. In the halcyon days of Sewell Holmes, he was at our offices so regularly we felt he was part of the team. He designed Dennis's new home on a plot of land he had purchased in Swanland. Ken did, however, have a darker depressive side, which on a bad day made him feel that the world was against him. This was at its worst when he was going through the divorce from his first wife. He became a lost, lonely figure, often turning up on our doorstep with some fatuous business excuse when he just wanted some companionship and for soup to feed him. He never drank as he was allergic to alcohol, a disability that Dennis and I often wished upon Keith. Ken designed the two houses I had built for myself. Firstly, a mock Tudor job on the small estate called the Woodlands in Highland Way, Cottingham. Then our rambling farmhouse at the Parklands behind the King George V playing fields, the wreck, where he did a superb piecemeal design to make the property look and feel a hundred years older than it was. Throughout the process, he showed understanding, even though we must have severely tested his patience on occasion. When you are designing your own place, you realise that if you are not wholly satisfied with the outcome, you only have yourself and the decisions you've made to blame, and so you become more fastidious. We observed and even guided Ken through his courtship of a new love, Rosie, a striking blonde who went well on his arm. But we lost contact when they got married and had their only son, Oliver. We had a few updates over the years on how he was and how the business was doing in challenging times, but then received the shattering news that Ken had committed suicide in the most horrendous manner. His dark side had him put a tourniquet around his neck and jump out of the first floor window of his office in Beverly. I often wonder if it could have made any difference if I had bothered to keep in contact. I am terrible for concentrating what is relevant and in front of me, and prone to let relationships slip away and wither. Sometimes I do think that I'm not a very good mate. Patrick left Sewell Holmes to embark upon a belated gap year. Frank Markham arranged for him to go over to Malaysia to work with one of his former CITB students from the SWAT family on one of the prestigious projects they had in Johor Bahru, just over the causeway from Singapore. Patrick was never afraid of hard graft as a kid, working in the local supermarket and serving on at the lawn centre of Hull University. But he got a whole lot more as the Malays, with their immigrant labour, showed what superior productivity looked like. An increasing number of family holidays during an upbringing where we became more affluent over the years had given him a thirst for travel and he indulged that, taking the long route back home with girlfriend Catherine via Australia, Canada and a few other places in between. 
I thought there was a very good chance that he would settle abroad once he had sampled this lifestyle, but evidently he missed his roots. One person who was glad about that was Bob Craven Jones. Patrick's time away led him to decide that he did not want a career in building, but that retail was a possibility as he enjoyed helping out on that side of the business. His granddad Isaac would have been quite pleased about that, I think. Bob expressed a vision of having a group of a dozen or so outlets. In a fairly tight geographical area like the Estradin, this was the critical mass needed to enjoy the economies of a minimal scale. His strategy was to have his son David, a mature retailer in his own right, on the operational side, while he would coach Patrick in the general management of the forecourt business. He must have carried off the coaching and mentoring role very well, for Patrick went on to become a national industry figure in his own right, as chair of the Association of Convenience Stores from 2016 to 2019. So at the turn of the millennium, Patrick was joined full-time by Bob's son David, who had been helping advising whilst running his own outlet as a commission operator. The predicted millennium bug didn't arrive, but David did, and the team that would take us through the noughties was assembled. CJ, as David had always been called, trained as a mechanical engineer, and so was practical and knew how a petrol filling station worked with its web of pipework connecting tanks to pumps. His accent was just as posh as his dad's, with car in garage, rather than the flat parochial hull vernacular that surrounded them both. With the advent of the new team, there were two new opportunities, and, as is typical of the entrepreneurial journey and process, one worked and one didn't. Dennis in particular was keen on creating a quality convenience offer in his home village of Swanland, and we bought the old existing store with the intention of refurbishing and modernising it. Unfortunately, we discovered significant structural problems which necessitated a full rebuild. During the delay, the news agents across the road became available, so we purchased that in order to trade in the interim. We tried hard to please the good people of Swanland, difficult at times though this was. Trade was relatively good, but the problem was that we had spent too much money on the redevelopment to be able to get an adequate return. It is often not till the third summer that you get to evaluate a business like this properly and, without the utility sales line that is fuel, we found pure convenience retailing tough. So in year four, we cut our losses and put the Swanland business on the market. Good entrepreneurial biz people fail quick and move on without being too keen to prove that their original business case decisions were right. Failure is part of success and often precedes it. So we just say, fail sooner to succeed quicker. Here we were lucky that two national operators were interested in the site and engaged in a bidding war that enabled us to get our money back. Lucky, and more good fortune followed because some staff didn't want to transfer to the new owner under Tupi regulations, preferring to stay in the Sewell family and culture. One of them was a local young village girl named Catherine Batch. You will hear more of her later. The other deal that worked a dream for us was the acquisition of two filling stations on the A63, which is the only main road in and out of the city to the west. Up for grabs was a small, quirky outlet eastbound at South Cave, the other being the first stop out of full westbound at North Ferriby. 
National Volume Group Safe Service Stations, run by former associates of Bob C.J. called James Frost, had got into trouble with their bank, who were disposing of the sites to balance the books. We nicked in to do a deal for both, then immediately moved the South Cave site onto a local developer to build offices. This effectively paid for the other one at North Ferriby. Unlike Swanland, where we spent too much, Ferriby effectively cost us nothing. Nice development work if you can get it. The traditional post-board meeting lunch at the Garden Palace on Beverly Road tasted pretty good that month. Ferriby, or Hull West as it became known, was a different type of outlet. A transient motorway-style location with no surrounding population, our community being truckers with their particular lifestyle and needs. It was to become one of our most successful sites and definitely the best piece of acquisition business we ever did. The new millennium was with us and so was Dave CJ. All the computers worked and recognised 2000 as a number they could get on with but we were still only halfway to Bob's target of a group of 12 outlets. The thing about a good, impactful, simple vision is that it keeps nagging at the subconscious, driving the organisation and its people onto even the most unlikely of targets. A good one creates a unity of purpose and an abiding belief that the future is bright. This time next year, Rodney. Sometimes it's not just the stakeholders in your business who take an interest in what you are doing and how you are doing it. On occasion, it is your competitors. And this happened in the local petrol retail world when JRX viewed our retail operation with interest and a healthy envy. You lot do it so much better than us, Tim Ricks, its MD, told me. JRX are one of Hull's iconic metal stand, medium-sized family-owned businesses. Old, having been founded just three years before Fred Sewell was working on the Sutton Methodist Chapel in 1876. Well-heeled, with assets created by generations of decent business activity that far outstripped our modest progress as a little East Hull builder, and diversified by the entrepreneurs within who had bought holiday home manufacture, car retail and petrol wholesale and retail, and of course property, to join Rix's original raison d'etre of shipping. I met Tim's father, the fearsome John Rix, when I went to see him about a property the company owned in Wincombe Lee on the industrial banks of the River Hull, for which I had a plan for a conversion into a commercial hotel. John's opening line was, Good morning, Paul. How much money are you planning on making me? The strange journey that brought me to this point I shall now recount. The Royal Hotel in Hull is so named for its history of hosting members of the Royal Family who have arrived in the city at the adjacent Paragon Railway Station. By the time Sewell Construction had won three almost concurrent contracts there, it was owned by London-based friendly hotels and a guy called Henry Edwards, who had the good sense to recruit and install as his manager a young go-getting local entrepreneur named Steve Treadwell. I say local, but Steve's Lancastrian accent made it obvious that he did not originate from the city. But by the time we met, he was firmly ensconced as one of its major figures and personalities through his work at the Chamber of Trade and the many functions he organised and hosted at his central location. Steve was tall, 
with a pale complexion, a wide, friendly, open smile, spectacles and a build that would challenge the scales a bit later on in life. He had a simple, earthy wisdom, a perchamp for getting things done and was not afraid to challenge his bosses from London if things didn't make sense to him. In essence, he was a great hotel general manager and we became good friends. The projects we had won were firstly a refurbishment of the restaurant area, then the remodelling of two adjacent buildings, one to create a suite of serviced offices they were going to call Premier House, which was attached to the right of the front facade, and to the left, but separate from it, a derelict old building we were to make into a modern leisure centre complex with gym and swimming pool. The architect from London was one of the most unusual and eccentric people I have ever met. A Jewish South African called Maurice Meyerson, he was an exotic creation of the swinging 60s London, posing with his wife in matching sports cars, Carnaby Street designer clothes and beautiful people as companions. By the time he had discovered Hull and entered into our client builder architect team with Steve Tradewell and myself, he was denying his twilight years in irreverent fashion with youthful clothes, thin moustache and a shaped pointed beard that made him look like a wizard on a good day and an out-of-work magician on a bad one. He was arrogant, superior, posh and lovely. Steve was blunt, opinionated, impatient and a joy. I was privileged to work and dine out with them and we all shared a mutual respect. Respect has to be demanded if it's not freely given and this happened with Maurice and I at an early stage of our relationship at the ritual site meetings on his monthly two-day visits. The meetings were always in a room at the hotel and Maurice held court in typical London architect fashion, which meant him never admitting to any sort of error in the usual ARIBA manner. Unfortunately, he had made an error on the design of the main stone stairway that would lead up to the front doors of the Premier House offices. We had constructed them exactly in line with his drawing, but the building inspector had condemned them as not being in accordance with current building regulations. Morris was having none of it. These have been checked by our people in London as complying with building regulations, he said. But that's in London and this building is in Hull, I replied. If that's the case, the stone manufacturer has a duty to check all drawings. And the architect has a duty to get those drawings correct, I held my position. A professional builder of your standing should have picked this up, he said, changing tack. Not picking up your errors does not make your drawing right, I responded. I have never had such an argument with a contractor. And I'm not here to argue with you, Morris. I'm here to get the job right. I have never been spoken to in such a way. He was now trying the indignance. Morris, I said slowly, loudly and assertively. You are plain fucking wrong. The room went silent for what seemed an age and Steve Tradewell was looking at his feet. It was Morris's turn, but he wasn't taking it. Then he broke the silence with his response to my contention that he was plainly in the wrong. I know, he said, looking away. How embarrassing. Morris was an incorrigible snob of a gourmet, and it became a ritual that we took him out for a meal on his Thursday evening up in Hull. 
We could not offer the restaurants and dining experiences of London, but he always made it feel like a top night out, even though his favourite was the rather downbeat peppies on Boothbury Road. His attitude and behaviour were always as if he were at the Savoy. To the joy, surprisingly, rather than the discomfort of the restaurant staff. Wherever we dined, it was always an occasion more than a meal. And I'm sure this influenced both mine and my family's attitude to dining in that we definitely live to eat rather than eat to live. I have never witnessed behaviour like Morris's in a restaurant before or since. Insisting on kitchen inspections, demanding details of ingredients and recipes and to know where fish and meat were sourced. He was way ahead of his time. On one occasion, when we had stayed in the station hotel at Steve's request, so that Morris could run the rule over a new chef, a poor nervous waiter had tripped when approaching our table and spilled a large dover sole on the floor. I'm so sorry, sir. I'll get you another one, he said politely. Yes, Morris replied knowingly, and you will leave that one there whilst you do so. At fish places like Saruti on the pier in Hull, he would insist that seafood such as lobster was always left pristinely in its shell, rather than the meat removed, flavoured and fluffed up to refill two shells, and hence shortchanging the diner. But it was at our area's most renowned restaurant that we had his biggest and best scene. Wintering and Fields was the area's only Michelin-rated restaurant, and Steve and I always harboured the ambition for it to host our discerning architect from London. The restaurant was famous for its wine, service, and particularly the most extensive cheese selection you could ever encounter. Later, this quaint location, hidden away around the corner from the Humber Bridge on the South Bank, would find even more local renown for facilitating the then secret affair between Lady Diana and Dodi Fayed. This remains a local legend, and I have to say the happy couple were never there to say hello on my occasional visits. Winteringham did not make Morris happy. Maybe it was because they were as knowledgeable, discerning and as snobby as he was. Whichever, he wanted to mix and match courses, examine and taste the cheese at will, and most controversially, pour his own wine. Unfortunately, the wine waiter was a stubborn French version of Morris, and protecting his rule, ended up fighting with the South African for possession of the bottle to dispense the wine. I swear they both had their clamped hands grappling with that bottle for what seemed an age, and I felt like intervening as a referee has to do when a boxing clinch is lasting too long. Also unfortunately for me, it was my turn to pay. Ouch. But perhaps it was for the best, because I doubt that Steve would have been able to get that expenses claim past his bosses. This was prudent, for Steve's direct boss and number two to Henry Edwards at Friendly Hotels was due up in Hull the following month. Mike Wildman was as London arrogant as Morris, but from the other side of the tracks, being very much the Cockney East End wide boy made good. Floppy blonde hair a la Joe Brown, the 60s pop singer, he was big, muscular and designer dressed as befitted the boyfriend of a page three model. I didn't care for him. His manners were appalling, not even thanking Steve for the Thursday fine dining or acknowledging that the works were going just fine to programme and on budget despite Morris's often dysfunctional design drawings. 
he preferred to pick fault to justify his existence as friendly hotels estates lead. The next day at the site meeting, he got the opportunity he had been waiting for. My friend from school, Dave Brawl, had the local Jaguar centre on Priory Park, and although we had largely lost touch, he contacted me to say he had a demo of a beast of a six-litre Jag that had just won at Le Mans a few months earlier, and wondered if I wanted to drive it for a week or two to see what I thought. I was, as I've said, no petrol head, and was never going to buy anything as ostentatious in those days, but I did take him up on his offer. And so it was that I drove this iconic big red sports car into the Royal Hotel car park that morning. By chance Mike Wildman was gazing out of the first floor meeting room window, awaiting my attendance for the meeting to start. Steve Tradewell later described events to me, although I have to say his attempts at a Cockney accent were more Coronation Street than EastEnders. What the fuck is that? Who does he think he is? Morris and Steve joined him at the window. Paul's here. Nice car, they said. How dare he? What's he think he's doing? Wildman wouldn't let go. What do you mean, Mike? Morris questioned. How dare that bloody builder turn up in a car like that? Pardon, the architect said, still unsure of what the problem was. Mike explained. Flaunting his success and how much money they're making out of us. It's fucking disgraceful. Wait till I tell Henry. Morris, bless his heart, called him out. Steve's South African dialect was better than his cockney. You Brits make me laugh with your green eyes. In my country or the States, he would be admired for his success, not criticised. We want to work with successful people who are obviously good at what they do. That's good for us, not bad. This was brave of Morris, for Mike was his client, but I guess the fact of the matter was that he knew Henry better than Mike did, for they went back a long way and he was almost the boss's private architect. For my part, I don't suffer from jealousy, even when we had nothing at 232 Northgate and everybody we knew seemed to have more, but I have observed its pernicious nature throughout my life. Maybe I should have just admitted to Mike that the car was borrowed. A short time later, we gave Mike Wildman, Henry Edwards and co something to be properly concerned about when we burned their hotel down. The works of the main hotel and the leisure centre were completed and handed over, thank God insurance-wise, and we were putting the finishing touches to the serviced offices next door. It was around 10 o'clock in the evening and my family were watching the telly when the phone rang. It was Dennis and he was pretty excitable, asking me to turn over to Channel 3 where I would see images of the biggest fire in the city of Hull since the wartime blitz. The Royal Hotel was ablaze and Dennis was fearing it was our fault. My attitude was similar to what it had been when the lights went out in South Leeds all those years ago. What could we do to help? It was 10 in the evening, this was not our site and the one next door had by this time been closed for six hours. We could only stress and possibly implicate ourselves needlessly. Let the emergency services get on and do their job and we could establish the facts of the matter in the morning. I lost the argument. Dennis picked me up 20 minutes later and we drove into the city centre to watch the spectacular incendiary display live. 
We stood by the city cenotaph across the road on Ferran's Way, feeling the radiant heat with the rest of the sightseers. Dennis feared that it might be a plumber's blow lamp in the Premier House offices that was the cause. I had to lighten the mood and said we should look on the bright side and that all the spring flowers would be up early in the cenotaph gardens. It took the fire brigade two days to extinguish the blaze and damp it down, but it took longer to establish that the cause was a cigarette in a guest room that had not been put out before the guest had dozed off. No one had been hurt, but the beautiful new front doors at Premier House had been recklessly battered down by a fire brigade in a macho display of pent-up testosterone when they only had to ask for the keys to an area which was obviously unaffected. I had a couple of firemen playing football for me at Cottingham Sports Club at the time. I wished that I could see that type of aggression on the pitch on a Saturday. The upshot of all this was that there was a new hotel to build. Whilst the insurance company did not engage us to do the work directly, as we were not on the approved list, we practically did it all for the shell company that was approved. Bert Marritt became the general foreman and anchor on the project, and we spent another 18 months on the Ferrensway site, making it the longest and most notable job in the company's long history. After the fire, I never saw Morris again, and no doubt he has departed this earth and is in gourmet heaven now. As far as Steve is concerned, our relationship continued, and this brings us back to John Ricks. I rarely go into the Royal Hotel now, for it is no longer the elegant central meeting point it once was for me under Steve. But when I do, I always wonder whether people know that they are actually in a new hotel, recreated within the original stone facade from the ashes and embers of that fateful night. Apologies for the sidestep and for introducing the building side once more in the retail part of the story. It just shows how the whole thing is intertwined. Interdependency is key to our business model. That's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Steve was getting fed up with the big corporate hotel business. With Henry and Morris edging into retirement, his future bosses would be the likes of Mike Wildman, and I never thought this would sit well with him. Steve was a natural entrepreneur, always destined to work for himself. The office in Wincombe Lee, on the banks of the River Hull, which had been Bob Craven Jones' base when he was chief at Burma Major Oil Company, had been acquired by J.R. Ricks. It was uninhabited, apart from some contractors dossing down there rather than take a bed and breakfast or a cheaper hotel. It was this that gave us the idea of turning it into a commercial hotel and giving Steve a crack at running it as his own business. Our hotelier liked the idea, and so did Ricks, so we had a deal with the landlord, tenants, and Sewell doing the redevelopments. During this process, I was introduced to John's son, Tim, but it was later that I got to know him better, working with him on civil society bodies, such as the Humber Local Enterprise Partnership, LEP. What I did know was that this blonde, brash heir was an advocate of reciprocal business. If they worked with us on the commercial hotel project, Tim would expect us to exclusively buy the red diesel for our building sites from Ricks. This was no problem for us, but the real price for them of supplying fuel to our petrol filling stations wasn't possible as we had a long-term sales agreement with Total. We used Ricks in an emergency, such as the oil tankers drivers strike in 1999, 
which had blockaded the refineries at Immingham, and this was accepted by both companies. The public are obviously unaware of government arrangements in such forced interruptions to the supply of vital resources. We had two of the designated outlets to receive fuel for the use by emergency services etc, but GRX would supply our others for which we were grateful. I have spent a career enduring the public sector mindset that they have to work with the big corporates to be safe and secure on delivery. But here in the Humber, it is local metal stand companies that actually produce the goods. I have spent a lifetime in construction, knowing that on our patch, with our people and supply chain, we outperform any of the big nationals. We proved this in the Building Schools for the Future government programme to build and renovate the schools estate in Hull. Yet the big boys provide the default option for risk-averse civil servants who fail to appreciate the regeneration effect of using local companies and keeping the public pounds circulating round the local economy. This is a shame that, for me, verges on the scandalous. As Tim took the Rick's business over from his father John, they became even more interested in property, always wanting to acquire land adjacent to their current buildings. This was when Tim made it known that they were open to withdrawing from running their petrol filling stations and reverting to the position of landlord where they believed somebody was available who did it better than them. Flatteringly, Tim thought that in the Hull area this was sole retail and negotiations were opened on what was a rather complex deal for us if not for them. But Rory Clark and David Wilson worked with Patrick to get it over the line by the time the noughties were in full swing. An initial four sites, then two more, saw us taking over the former Rick stations at Cottingham, Willoughby, Holderness Road, Whiten Bar, Pocklington and Chantlers Avenue directly opposite the housing estate that had made sewer construction. This doubled the size of our operation and brought Bob's vision to reality. However, we then entered into the difficult process of securing the cultural change necessary with the staff in order to make them obviously civil service stations. Rebranding and changing the logos is one thing, but civil retail leadership and management, together with the incredible support of Sam and Davison's professional services team in HR, IT, health and safety and finance, face the biggest challenge of their professional lives. Recruiting Simon, our audit lead at PwC, to join us as finance lead allowed Dave Leadham to concentrate on our burgeoning PFI, Private Finance Initiative, investments. This was another one of the big key signings that have characterised my career and have been so essential to the progress of the Sewell Company. Smart and personable, Simon was an obvious cultural match. This was evident from the moment I first observed his animated involvement in our affairs when he might have displayed the normal detached air of the professional auditor. His facial expressions would deny him a career as a poker player and it was obvious early on that he loved the people thing that I knew was essential to building a great organisation. I gradually realised that you get three for one with Simon Davison. One, the best FD I've ever come across. When he initially asked me what I wanted from him and I said a numberless story on the state of our finances, he provided number dyslexic me with a beautiful version of just that and has done so ever since. Two, a leader who, contrary to the FD stereotype, 
actively wanted to run a rockstar professional services team, creating value and work worth paying for rather than merely overseeing and minimising their cost to our overhead. Three, a deal maker who knew what it took and what a good deal looked like. The Rick's deal required all three of these attributes and Simon was key to it. So Sewell Retail had Bob's dozen sites, which would have pleased my dad, and was now a significant player needing to get on the go to reach its full potential and prove that this type of business was sustainable into the future.